Our psalm of the day comes from Psalm 119, a psalm celebrating the law of God and its place in the believer's life. Reading verses 121 through 136. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face to shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. It is my privilege to welcome Dr. Richard Horner to Christ Church Mandarin this morning. Dr. Horner was my professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in the fall of 2002. He was new. He had just moved to Gainesville and then agreed to come teach a class in Orlando. He runs the Christian Studies Center in Gainesville, which is a study center that attempts to bring the riches of the Christian tradition to bear on the university campus. And so there are many different provocative lectures and different Bible studies and classes and lectures that are given at the study center. Many of you may be familiar with it. But Dr. Horner has a gift for making very complicated things simple. And I remember my first class with him. This was in the heyday where everyone was talking about postmodernism and what it meant, and uh, everybody seemed to think that meant lighting candles and doing all kinds of weird things. But Dr. Horner gave us perhaps the best definition um, I've ever heard and still use today. He said, guys, what our world that we're moving into is, is it's a world where everything is possible and nothing is necessary. And that's his gift, putting it in a sentence like that where you can easily understand it. And so he was a gift to me as a young seminarian, and then it was a joy coming back to uh, to Florida and and meeting Richard again uh, after my Presbytery exam. And as many of you know, I was an Anglican coming back into Presbyterianism, um, and so I was peppered rather ferociously on the floor of the Presbytery. And... And Richard came up to me and he said, I wouldn't have answered those questions in any other way than you did. And whether that was true or not, it was very kind. Uh, (laughs) And so uh, he's always been a good friend. I'm glad to welcome him. He also with me is suffering from a head cold and coughing. And so bear with us both. Um, I think we're both on Sudafed this morning. So this could be a lot of fun. But let's welcome Richard Horner. Well, it is... uh very good to be with you here this morning. So thankful for the invitation and uh, good just to be here to worship with you together. Um, 
I want to begin, though, by simply turning to the Scriptures themselves and letting the Scriptures speak to us from the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. Chapter 3, we'll read verses 15 to 29. Paul has been talking about the promise given to Abraham, and here what he wants to make clear again is that when God gave the law through Moses, that didn't undo the promises to Abraham, the promises of our inheritance, our salvation, of our justification before God by His doing, by God's doing, to be received by faith alone. And so we read Galatians 3 verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise through the faith of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law became our schoolmaster or our guardian, pointing to Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all sons of God through the faith which is in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that what we have in the Scriptures are not simply human imaginings for how we might think about you, but that we have words that are the words of the Holy Spirit given to the apostles and prophets, in which you reveal yourself and give us the truth as only our Creator could do. Thank you that in these words we encounter such a Creator who is also our Redeemer, a promise-making promise-keeping triune God. Thank you, Holy Father, for your promises. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your promises and keeping of those promises to your Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being that promised Holy Spirit who dwells in your people. Lord God, we are in a challenging passage this morning. I feel my weaknesses before it. I pray for brothers and sisters and friends here that you would grant them mercies and grace that together we would understand your word. And whether we get this phrase or that argument right or wrong, may it lead us to Christ. Lord Jesus, we come to thee as we have sung thy glorious face to behold. Be thou our vision again this morning. And may the result of the consideration of your word and hearing it this morning be that we see Jesus more clearly and are drawn more closely to him. We thank you and pray in his name. Amen. <coughs> As Chuck says, I am coughing along with him this morning, but I am awfully glad to be here this morning. Finally, Chuck and I have talked about doing this more than once, my schedule always seeming to be the problem, but finally it's worked, and I am delighted to be here at Christ Church this morning. We have had good friends in this congregation over the years. Our own pastor, Tim Hayes, has background in this congregation. We're so thankful for Tim uh, in, our, in our case and, and just have had so much respect for the pastors of this church over the years as well. Delighted that my former student, Chuck, is uh, in this role with you at this point. Delighted for his ministry among you and the ministry that you all have together in this community. When Chuck invited me to preach, he told me that you were currently making your way through a series in the Epistle to the Galatians, and uh, asked me if I would be willing to just kind of fit right into the preaching rotation and take an assignment, and I said, yeah, actually, I'd be glad to do that. I like to be given an assignment when I preach. Uh, it actually takes a little pressure off of me, so I said, sure, let me do whatever's on the schedule, and then I realized what the passage was that he was asking me to look at with you this morning. I've got to say, Galatians 3 and 4 are probably some of the most difficult portions of the Pauline writings I know of. I have suspected, you know, I've had this vision of Chuck a few months ago working out the preaching schedule, <laughs> getting this one on the schedule for this week and going, man, have I got to get a guest preacher for that week. <laughs> so here we are, folks. I am that guest preacher but genuinely glad to be so, glad for my own reflections and study of this passage again recently. And I do trust that uh, as we drop into this difficult passage and look at it with some carefulness, I trust that whether I get this phrase or that argument right or wrong in its detail, that it will lead us to see Christ more fully, that it really will draw Jesus into view and draw us more closely to him. As we go in, then, let's remember, first of all, the apostle's overarching concern as he writes this letter. As he says in the beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. The question that the people in Galatia had raised was, shouldn't we be expected to contribute something to our own salvation? Wouldn't it be only right that we would bring some measure of righteousness ourselves by which we would be justified before God? And in that case, 
of Jews and Gentiles together in these newly forming congregations. The question was specifically, shouldn't the Old Testament laws given to Moses, the rituals, the practices, the regulations still apply? So the people should, for instance, practice the rite of circumcision. Aren't these things necessary to be justified in the sight of God? To which Paul adamantly responds, no, there is nothing that you can add to the work of God by which you are saved. Salvation, whether it is spoken of as our inheritance or our everlasting life or the gift of justification before God and reconciliation with Him, is a free gift. Our only role, the only human role in it of those who receive that gift is to believe in the promise of God and the work of Christ. Paul wants to make it very clear not only that this is how it was in the time of his day and in the day of Christ, but that this is how it had always been in a true understanding of the Hebrew religion. This was not a new idea that Paul was introducing, that salvation would be the work of God's grace to be received by faith alone. He said that's how it was for Abraham. That's how it was for Moses. That's how it was for David and for the prophets who followed them. None of those people was saved through their own works of the law. Their salvation was based on the promise of God, the grace of God, and the work of the Messiah who would come, whom we know to be Jesus Christ. Now, in making this argument, Paul does contrast our faith and our works, making it very clear that it's not by our works that we are saved, but it is through the exercise of our faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. But the other contrast, and I think an even more fundamental contrast in his argument is, not just between our works and our faith, but between our works and the work of Jesus Christ. Our works he refers to as obedience to the law, our attempts to get it right. The work of Jesus Christ he refers to in this phrase, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, typically in your English versions, and again, you would have seen it here this morning, that little genitive phrase, faith of Jesus Christ, is typically translated as faith in Jesus Christ. I would suggest, as I think Chuck has also done in his handling of this text, that the better, simpler, straightforward rendering of that phrase is the faith of Jesus Christ. That it's pointing us to Jesus' own faithfulness by which he accomplishes the righteousness that you and I lack, by which he goes to the cross to die that sacrificial death that you and I desperately need. It is his faithful obedience to the Father. It is his faithful keeping of the promises to his Father. It is Christ's own keeping of the covenantal promises. It is his faithfulness. At the end of chapter 2, then, we read in verse 15, Paul talking about himself and Peter and the other apostles, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus. You see, it doesn't eliminate or downplay the need for us to believe or trust in him. It brings the focus to the one in whom we trust. 
We are not justified by works of the law, he says, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not by our own works of the law, because by our works of the law, no one will be justified. It is then the work of Jesus Christ that Paul points to and brings into focus as the means by which God delivers his people, whether it was in the day of Abraham, Moses, or the day of Christ, or in our own day today. As you move into chapter 3 then, Paul is continuing this argument, maintaining that salvation had always been the work of God to be received by faith alone. It was true of Moses, of David, of the later prophets. It was true in the day of Christ. And so in chapter 3, he appeals to Abraham as the example par excellence of salvation by faith. He quotes Habakkuk, saying that it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so we come to this morning's passage, this challenging text in which Paul uses some key terms in unusual ways. He weaves together a couple of different lines of thought. But I would suggest to you that his central argument in this passage is that while salvation has always been by grace and received by faith alone, the role that the law had played before Christ did change with the coming of Christ. Whereas before Christ came, the law played the role of convicting people of their sin and pointing them to the one who would come, now that Christ has come, he does the work that the law once did. His overwhelming love expressed in his incarnation, his selfless service, his profound teaching, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father where he prays for us, his pouring out of the Spirit, all this work of Christ now does the work that the law once did of convicting us of our sin and leading us to him for our salvation. We no longer need the shadows and the symbols, the regulations and the practices that the Old Testament people had for now we have the reality to which all of that pointed. So as Paul writes it just a little bit earlier in the epistle, he says the life we now live, we live by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Paul says there is now, O oh Galatians, O oh Christ church, there is now an immediacy of Jesus Christ. Why settle? Why settle for those laws and those regulations and practices that pointed dimly toward him when now you have the reality, a personal reality, an immediacy of the presence of Jesus Christ, a union with him, the fullness of his spirit. You are now in this privileged place of being sons of God by faith, Jew and Gentile alike. Live in the fullness of the presence of Christ. And so as he unpacks in this passage his argument, he has us looking at Abraham in verse 15, 
where Paul talks about both the law and the seed of Abraham, or the offspring, as I think the, uh, whatever we read, uh, English Standard Version, ESV, uh, records. Look first at what he just says about the law. Verse 15, Paul writes, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. Skipping down to verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it is no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, so far so good? Abraham comes, receives the promises of salvation of an eternal inheritance. He receives that by faith alone. Moses comes 400 years later, and through Moses, the people are given laws, regulations, rules, practices that they are now to practice. But Paul says that doesn't undo the promises to Abraham. That doesn't undo the idea that salvation would be by the grace of God and by the promise of God. Paul then asks an obvious question. If that is the case in verse 19, why then the law? He answers by saying, it was added because of transgressions. But before unpacking just what he means by saying that the law was added because of transgressions, Paul asks another question that lets him reiterate his main point. In verse 21, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? To which he responds, certainly not. It is not contrary to the promises of God. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture or the law imprisons everything under sin. So that the promise that is rooted in the faith of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Once again, he is clear, the promise of salvation comes through the work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and it is for those who believe. Again, this was not something that began at the time of Jesus. This had always been the case. But we no sooner get this clarity than we have this hard moment in this passage. In verse 23, we have this puzzling comment where Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. What does Paul mean when he says, before faith came? I thought his argument was that salvation has always been by faith. <laughs> this is part of what's so tough about this particular passage. What is going on in this moment with Paul? And thank you for being gracious and hanging in here with me as we do this careful reading. I think the best way to understand what Paul is saying here is not to see the word faith in this reference as a reference to the individual believing in Jesus Christ, but as a reference to the faith that has been ushered in by the coming of Jesus Christ. Translations handle this differently, but I would propose Excuse me. I would propose that the article, the, should appear with the word faith in verses 23 to 25. It is there in the Greek. I think it ought to be there in the English, and I'm not sure why it's not frequently translated that way. 
In other words, Paul is speaking of the faith with a capital F here. (laughs) Much as he did earlier in the epistle in chapter 1, verse 23, where he says that he was now preaching, quote, the faith that he once tried to destroy. One might even read the word Christian in here, the Christian faith. This message of salvation now, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. This message of good news about the forgiveness of sin, the union with Christ that is now there, the presence and pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the standing as sons of God. The teaching that salvation is by faith has not changed, but new realities of the immediacy of Jesus Christ for the believer have been introduced. And so Paul argues that before the coming of Jesus himself, back in the day of Moses, the law was added because of transgressions. And when he says that, he seems to mean two things. He gives us two images here for what it would mean that the law was added because of transgression. In verse 23, or in verse 22, forgive me, the scripture or the law imprisoned everything under sin. In verse 23, he uses a similar image, writing that in that Old Testament period, people were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. I would take this image of the law as a sort of a prison, as being Paul's way of saying the law condemned people. The law did the work of convicting them of their sin. It was never meant to save them. It was meant to convict them and make it clear to them that they needed a Savior. They needed the grace of God. The second image that Paul employs here emphasizes not the way that the law convicts people of sin, but the way that the law reveals the gracious provision of God through which he would fulfill uh, their, their salvation. It points toward the Messiah or Christ who would come. Remember, he says, the law was our schoolmaster pointing to Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. And again, that was the ways back in the day of Moses. Moses was justified by faith in Christ. Remember, the law was not simply a set of thou shalt nots. The law was also a very detailed ordering of the liturgical life of the people of Israel. It gave them rules for everything from circumcising male infants to the practices of morning and evening prayers. It gave them rules for everything from how to furnish the temple to what the priests were to do in celebrating the feasts. It laid out rules for each type of sacrifice and for how each was to be offered. What was it doing in all these things? It was pointing the people to the gracious provision of God for their salvation. It was like a schoolmaster or a guardian with a young child, pointing them to the Savior who would come. In this way, the law was also a work of God's grace. Those who lived before the coming of the Messiah, being weak and sinful like ourselves, 
needed help to believe in the promises of God and to be moved to believe in his mercies. God gave them that help in the form of the law as a schoolmaster or guardian that led them to trust in the coming Christ prior to his coming. It was never meant to save them. It was meant to point them to the one who would save them. And it was meant to do it not just once in their lives, but day after day, continually. Think of David, King David, his practices, his way of life. All of these rules and regulations and practices were in place for him. Were they his salvation? No. Did they convict him of sin? Yes. Did they point him toward the one who is and would be his Savior? Yes. Was he saved by faith? Yes. Now that Christ has come, though, Paul says, we are no longer under this schoolmaster any longer. Verse 25, now has the, that the faith has come, that Christ himself is here, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all sons of God through the faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now that Christ has come then to have faith in him is to enjoy the standing of being sons of God. Whether you are male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, that is your standing before God. No longer under the guardianship of the law, but in a close personal relationship with Jesus Christ in which we enjoy the reality of his presence and the fullness of his spirit. The work that the law would once have done in constantly drawing people's attention to Christ, Christ now does himself. We no longer need to depend on the rituals of the temple on the sacrificial system or of circumcision or of any other ritual practice of the law, for we now have the reality. We have the one to whom it all pointed. Why live any longer in the shadows and the symbols that pointed to him now that we have the one to whom they pointed. Paul then gives this one practical implication at the end of this passage where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek then, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. What is he saying? <laughs> he is reminding us that in the old law, with its practices, its rules and regulations, its prescriptions for how to worship at the temple, that law did distinguish between male and female. It did distinguish between Jews and Gentiles. It did distinguish between free and slave. Those days are gone. Now the reality is in Christ who has now come. And so there is this stirring declaration of our equal standing in Christ, of our oneness in him, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. We are all now one in Christ. The life we now live, we live by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We have been crucified with him and we no longer live, but he lives within all of us who have been baptized into him. The veil of the temple has been torn in two and we are invited into the unmediated presence of Jesus Christ.
that he in his overwhelming love <laughs> might convict us of our need for him and draw us to him <laughs> as our Savior and our Lord. You've been really good. This unmediated reality of Jesus Christ takes us back to a couple of phrases we skipped over, and they're just so rich and so good, I can't leave them unaddressed, okay? Just very briefly, but I want to take you back to verse 16 that says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, offspring in the English Standard Version. Seed is still the word I like best here. It's the word that goes there. To his seed, it does not say, Paul says, and to seeds, plural, but to one and to your seed who is Christ. Paul's argument here is that while seed does still apply to all of us who are then in Christ, it applies most specifically to Jesus Christ himself as the seed of Abraham and the one to whom the promise had been made. The promise made to Abraham was also actually a promise to Jesus Christ. That's interesting. Verse 19 speaks of the coming seed to whom the promise had been made. And then in verse 20, we get this verse. What do we do with this one? It says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I can guarantee you, I haven't looked at all 300 commentaries on the book of Galatians, but the ones I've looked through, there are as many interpretations of that verse 20 in Galatians 3 as there are commentaries on the book of Galatians. What in the world is going on there? What shall we make of this puzzling line? Well, I think what's going on here is that Paul is contrasting the fact that where the law is concerned, there was a human intermediary. There was God and the people, and Moses was the intermediary between God and the people. And so the law is given through an intermediary. But where the promise is concerned, there is no intermediary. Why? Because the promise is a promise of God to himself. The promises are the promises of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. This is the covenant. <laughs> Moses was, was in the position of being an intermediary through whom God gave the law. Abraham was not an intermediary. Abraham was a witness who participated in the blessings of the covenant by faith alone. But in that great passage in Genesis 15, when the covenant is established, Abraham falls asleep. And he has a vision in which he sees a smoking pot and a torch passing between the animals by which the covenant is made. It's not Abraham that passes through. It is two symbols of God himself. <laughs> That's why the covenant is so reliable. It didn't depend on Abraham. It doesn't depend on us. It depended on the Father's promises to the Son and the Son's promises to the Father. And so when you look at other passages where the covenantal language appears and you have God talking to himself as the triune God he is, you have this same image, Psalm 110, Isaiah 52 and 53. The larger catechism tells us the covenant of grace was made with Christ 
That's interesting. Who's making it? God the Father is making it with God the Son, Jesus Christ. The ultimate covenant then, my friends, is not between God and man, but between God the Father and God the Son. Thus, while the law came through angels and a human mediator, the promises came from God who is one. They depend on his ability to keep his promises to himself. Thus, while there needed to be an intermediary between God and the people when God gave the law, there did not need to be an intermediary between God the Father and God the Son. When God established the covenant of grace, for as Paul says here, God is one. And so this passage leads us to Christ, poignantly, powerfully, think about Jesus in the garden on the eve of his death. Enter into his struggles there. What's happening? This is the cup of the covenant, he says. A different image from the Old Testament imagery of the animal sacrifices. Now it is a cup that is to be drunk. And his prayer in the garden with his heavenly Father, is there no other way to do this? Is there no other way to accomplish the salvation of the people that we love? And the answer is, no, there is no other way. These are the promises we as Father and Son have made to each other. This is the plan of the triune God from before the foundation of the world. And in Christ's death, that plan would reach its deepest fulfillment. He would fulfill his promises to the Father. And through Christ's faithful obedience, God would accomplish our salvation, a salvation that we receive with open, empty hands by faith alone, to which we can add nothing. So that as Paul puts it in verse 22, the promise that is through the faith of Jesus Christ is given to those who believe. Well, again, you've been gracious and patient, giving your attention to this careful reading of the text as we finish I just want to encourage you, whether we've followed the details, whether I've gotten this or that or the other thing right or wrong, I trust that what this passage does for us and what I know the apostle would want it to do for us is to, is to point us toward Jesus. And to just remember again, there is nothing we can do through our works of the law to add to the work that Jesus Christ has done. Rest in the promises of God made good in Christ and draw near to him. <laughs> Look into the face of Jesus Christ. And as Paul says to the Corinthian church, behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. What changed, you see, with the coming of Jesus was not that... Um, it was not that the basis of our salvation changed or the one through whom we are saved changed or that it is received by faith has changed. All of that remained the same. What was new and different was that Jesus would now do the work that the law once did in convicting us of sin and drawing us to him as our Savior. He now convicts us and draws us to himself. Why look any longer to the rules and regulations then that gave people a glimpse of the coming Savior once the Savior had come in all his fullness? 
Let our standing as sons of God free us from the need for a tutor or a guardian. Let this clear vision of the incarnate Son of God and all of His faithfulness be all we need. Let Christ and Him crucify overwhelm you. Look to Jesus and sing that song we sang this morning, Be my vision, be thou my vision, over and over. Come alongside the manger and see the one through whom the worlds were made lying as a helpless babe. Recognize the humility of becoming human, the further humility of becoming a baby, the further humility still of his poverty and of being born in a barn. Walk with him and hear his teaching. Marvel at his wisdom. Drink in the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels and read the Gospels all the more. Watch him bring healing and forgiveness and peace to sick and troubled souls. Come into that garden and behold his agony. Come to the cross. And though you may hold back, even as his disciples did, witness that still greater suffering of the Lord Jesus, the fullness of that love by which he keeps his covenantal promises and accomplishes your salvation. Look to him as he is now risen and ascended at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he prays for you as your high priest. Let the reality of his love, of his presence, do the work of convicting you of your need for him. Let his love do the work of drawing you to himself to rest fully in him, to draw near to him, not just once in your life, but day after day after day as a way of life. You have been crucified with Christ it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Almighty God, how thankful we are for your word. Thank you for your grace this morning and your spirit to attend that word. Oh, be thou our vision. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our senses, open our minds and hearts to see, to hear, to understand, to know this love that surpasses knowing, to know this Jesus in whom and through whom you reveal yourself and you love us so profoundly. Do forgive us for our idolatries, forgive us for our trivialities. Draw us, please draw us to Jesus. And may this word this morning serve you in that purpose. We pray in his name. Amen.